Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Usually the information is presented as these countries are barbaric, primitive, and they ban abortion, they punish women. And that is the only way in which protection of the unborn child is presented. But it is so much broader than that. Many constitutions in Latin America and the Caribbean protect and recognize the unborn child since the moment of conception as a human being, as a legal person. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. With me today is Professor Ligia Castaldi, who was already our guest and promised that she would be back with us. And so, well, promise kept. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So for those of you who missed our previous episode with Professor Castaldi, that was an Argentina new abortion bill, you can go back and look for that episode. But I will also remind you that for those who didn't listen to that episode, that Professor Castaldi is professor of law at Ave Maria School of Law and the author of the book Abortion in Latin America and the Caribbean. It was published last year in 2020. What we promised on that episode, Professor Castaldi, is that we would talk about today about your book. And that's exactly what we will do. But before we start, I would like you, Professor, to tell us why this book and this show is relevant not only for a Latin American audience and not only for legal experts, international law expert audience, but also for the U.S. audience and for people that are just curious to know more about abortion. Well, I think since Roe v. Wade, um, the just criminalization of abortion is probably a distant memory for most Americans. And really what banning abortion means or how it worked before Roe v. Wade is kind of foreign to them. So they may be interested in perhaps hearing how it does the work in the modern world and pretty much in a great part of the world, the part of the world, developing countries that still value human life and that give, ironically, uh, greater protection to the unborn child from abortion, from elective abortion. So it might be a good illustration of that, I think, for an American audience. It might be interesting in that sense. You mentioned ironically. You use that word because you think that India, you know, it's very common here in the U.S. to think that if you criminalize abortion, that means no protection whatsoever. Or is that another reason for the choice of that word? I guess I use that word because the United States obviously a beacon of human rights protection for many other countries in the world. And it is certainly a country that has been a pioneer in promoting all kinds of civil rights, the right to vote, racial equality, etc., civil and political rights. So ironically, I say ironically because some rights that the United States used to protect have lost protection here in America, such as the unborn child's right to life. So ironically, some less developed countries still protect those rights today. I see. Yes. And which actually is the majority of Latin American country. Let me go back then and say, you know, you, you decided to write this book on Latin abortion in Latin America and the Caribbean, and you analyze many very relevant things about Inter-American Court and Commission that I would like you to talk about. But the first thing was a question like, why writing a book like that when people can just go online nowadays and Google the status of the law in Latin America and find out what the law is about 
Well, I did that before I wrote the book. I did go online and look for the information on, you know, abortion databases and websites. But I found that the information was very biased, ideologically biased in favor of pro-abortion ideologies. I found that the information was inaccurate very oftentimes. And again, that it had, it wanted to represent something that wasn't necessarily there. So I wanted to give pro-life researchers a kind of a one-stop shop where they could get accurate information about the state of the law regarding abortion in Latin America. The status of the law and perhaps also the status of the problems of the law, right? So being described like laws that allow abortions only in certain circumstances and being described as laws that punish women for having abortions. Is that also like that kind of bias that you tried to expose? Correct. Correct. Because most of, you know, it's usually presented as a negative, you know, oh, these countries ban abortion. So usually the information is presented as these countries are barbaric, primitive, and they ban abortion, they punish women. And that is the only way in which protection of the unborn child is presented. But it is so much broader than that. Many constitutions in Latin America and the Caribbean protect and recognize the unborn child since the moment of conception as a human being, as a legal person. For instance, Chile, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Paraguay, and Peru recognize explicitly the unborn child's personhood. Also, some of the civil codes, childhood codes, also recognize the unborn child as a subject of rights, not just with a legal entitlement to life, but also to health, to social protection, and equal protection before the law, which is important. So a lot of the legislation is positive. It isn't just about banning abortion. It's about recognizing the child as a legal person entitled to at least a minimum set of rights, because like children, of course, unborn children cannot exercise all rights. Children cannot vote, they cannot drive, they cannot drink, right? But they aren't nevertheless entitled to the right to life. So. Many Latin American jurisdictions recognize that. And even other rights, like, for instance, a right to alimony in some jurisdictions, succession rights, property rights, are granted in some jurisdictions to the unborn child. So, yeah, so your book and what you present can be an example for even policymakers um, and people that are responsible for drafting new good laws in the states for having an idea of what good laws, meaning pro-life laws, could look like and how they could be drafted. So that's, you know, very good to hear. And I mean, that's one more reason for me to promote your excellent book. I was fortunate to read soon after it was published. For our audience, how is this book structured? Or like, what are the main topics that you discuss within the book? It is mostly structured around uh, a pro-life treaty that Latin American nations have ratified, and that's the American Convention on Human Rights article of which recognizes a right to life from conception. So it's mostly structured about that. But it has several chapters on how abortion is regulated in Latin America and other chapters on how abortion is treated at the Organization of American States, which has two main human rights bodies, the Inter-American Commission and the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. So it looks at both sides, so at the national laws, which I think is the most important side. And then it looks at these international organizations, human rights organizations, and how they really are trying to change those national laws. 
So, but I would say probably to just a general non-lawyer audience, the chapters on national laws would be the most interesting, just because they're very easy to, I think, to understand. But for the people that are most interested in international law among your audience, and I know that we might have a lot of lawyers tuning in for for this conversation, you said something quite interesting, which is Latin American countries signed a convention, a pro-life convention, that at Article 4 protects life from convention. However, this... And and, by the way, the United States signed it. Okay, yes. So these are the two things that I would like to discuss with you. The first one being the fact that this convention has been interpreted in a way that is actually sanctioning the legalization of abortion everywhere. And on the other hand, the fact that the U.S. is a signatory of this convention and what does that mean for the U.S.? Right. Well, the the convention has been given a very restrictive interpretation as pretty much allowing abortion, but only by the commission. The Inter-American Court has at least not so far not given a pro-abortion interpretation of the convention, at least not directly, only indirectly through a case regarding artificial reproduction. But the commission has... What do you mean exactly by indirectly? Because it was a case about artificial reproduction that did not deal with abortion, but the court, however, in that case, interpreted the term person not to include the human embryo that was fertilized in vitro. So it was kind of a narrow reading, and it doesn't create authority for subsequent cases. However, they did it in one case. Okay. The commission, however, has been advocating for creation of abortion rights for a long time. And the U.S. actually in this past administration during the Trump administration withdrew funding from the Inter-American Commission because of its abortion promotion. And nevertheless, the commission has continued and that's probably not going to change now with the Biden administration. So one of the instruments the U.S. has to influence what happens in the commission is the funding side of it? Right. The United States provides more than half of the commission's funding. So it, it definitely could, like it did in the past administration, could influence the commission that way. The United States is also a signatory to the American Convention. So that means that it is not entirely bound by the terms of the treaty, but it is supposed to respect the object and purpose of the treaty. So technically, the United States is supposed to respect at least a general protection of the right to life from conception as it is now. But that was tested once in 1981 by a case brought forward by U.S. congressmen during the Reagan administration. And the commission interpreted the convention restrictively and said that the United States did not have to change its abortion laws. The caveat is this was only the commission. This was not the court. The court cannot hear cases against the United States. So it wasn't a legally binding finding. Nevertheless, it had the political effect of pretty much leaving U.S. abortion law outside of the commission and the court's jurisdiction. I see. And is this the case, the case of Baby Boy? Was that the one? Right. That is you tell, I found it very interesting, like reading your book, I found it very interesting in its relationship to Roe v. Wade. So could you just tell us something more about what happened there? Yeah, the Baby Boy case was a really kind of gruesome situation where a teenager was having a second trimester abortion. So the abortionist was Dr. Edelin, Kenneth Edelin, who became a president of Planned Parenthood Federation, actually. He performed an abortion procedure where he intentionally, so this was a viable child, so he intentionally caused the death in utero 
of the child so that he could avoid the viability restrictions, but this was a post-viability abortion. So the abortion was uh, reported by one of the nurses who saw what he did. He made, I mean, this was a viable child, but he prevented a live birth. So he went uh, to the Massachusetts, all the way to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. He was convicted for illegal abortion, and he went to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, and they acquitted him. So he was acquitted there. These congressmen brought the case before the Inter-American Commission, but the Inter-American Commission found that his actions did not, that because they were challenging U.S. legalization of abortion via Roe v. Wade, and the commission concluded that because of the convention's language, which allowed exceptions according to their interpretation to the right to life of the unborn child, the U.S. was allowed to regulate abortion as it saw fit, and because the United States has not ratified, has only signed the convention, then it wasn't entirely bound by it. So that was the finding by the commission, and it prevented any other challenges against U.S. abortion law in the commission because it had that political effect, although legally, like I said, it didn't have an authoritative value. And if we can, can we compare the inter-American court and its power on the legislation of American states that are subject to its jurisdiction, so not the United States, but the other Latin American states, to the power of the Supreme Court in the United States? Or is there, is there a difference? Well, I'm sure they would like to have the same power that the U.S. Supreme Court has on the states. I well, think who that wouldn't, right? they would yeah. like to become kind of a federal court and treat Latin American nations as, you know, federal states. But that is not the power given to that court by the convention. The convention only gives it the power to make decisions on a case-by-case basis without creating precedent. Yeah. And those decisions are only binding on the nation that is a party to the dispute. They don't have erga omnes value, which means they're not binding to all of the nations, right? Only to that party. So that's the authority that the convention gives them, but they have come up with a new doctrine called control de convencionalidad. So it could be literally translated as conventionality control, according to which they say their decisions are binding on all Latin American countries, kind of like U.S. or decisions are binding on all U.S. states. So they're trying to expand their authority, no doubt. But whether states will accept that is still debatable. Whether Latin American countries will accept it is debatable. Okay, so that's interesting. So that means for our audience that if they read that the Inter-American Court decided that the Argentinian law, a new Argentinian law on abortion is okay, and you know there is a right to abortion, that would not mean that the entire southern part of the continent would need to change its laws or that it would, you know, declare the unconstitutionality of their ban. One thing that, you know, our audience could be curious about is who nominates those judges? And are there, you know, are there divides like pro-life judges and non like, is there a similar political divide among that court? Fortunately, most judges, yes, they are nominated by the states and voted by the Organization of American States General Assembly. So that's like a small UN. It's a regional organization only for Latin America, the Caribbean. So they're political nominations, unfortunately, because the human rights world has been hijacked by certain ideologies, including pro-abortion ideologies. It's very hard to find pro-life judges. And right now, there's probably only one at the Inter-American Court, with most of them kind of adhering to the mainstream opinion in the human rights world that abortion should be a human right. So it's a difficult court, and probably more effort should be done as in the United States, to have 
non-ideological judges on the bench in Latin America. And does the U.S. as a member of the OAS as a vote on who can be a judge or not? Yes, the U.S. has actually had one judge in the court, even though it's not a party to the convention, it already had one judge at the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, Thomas Bergenthal, who I believe is still a, or was a professor at American University. So, so yes, the United States uh, is definitely one of the states that get to vote. So there is a way, there is a way to keep good work being done elsewhere in the world and not only at home and then use, as you said, what we can read in this book to get an example of what different, you know, not necessarily better or worse, but like different laws on abortion could look like. My question, maybe the final question, because the promise uh, for our audience is that we keep this episode short so that they learn something, but they can go, you know, it's just like their coffee break. But I was curious about this. What do you think, what was the most interesting thing you learned as you were writing this book? I think the most interesting thing I learned was that Latin American countries do not have as strict bans on abortion as I thought. And the bans on abortion are not what I thought initially either. So usually bans on abortion are strict in the sense that only a few exceptions are allowed in about a half of the countries. And in some countries, no exceptions are allowed, which sounds very harsh. But in reality, it isn't because the one exception that I think everybody thinks of is completely, let's say, unfair would be the life of the mother. So where the life of the mother is at stake and there's no way to save her, then abortion should be allowed, right? Because it's two lives. So, and I found out that indirect abortion, as it's called in some places, is always allowed when the life of the mother is endangered. So that would be the procedure where the objective is not to kill the child, but to end the pregnancy and deliver the child as another patient. The child will receive neonatal care. And if the child dies, then that's an unintended consequence of the procedure. It is not the direct consequence of the procedure. So that's allowed in every country. So then I found that it was inaccurate when they said, well, most Latin American countries have a full abortion ban. No, because they allow indirect abortion. So in some ways, not all abortions are banned. And in some cases, some countries allow abortion, for instance, when a child has been conceived in rape or incest, not as a solution to the rape or the incest. Obviously, that will not reverse the crime. If something could reverse a rape or incest, then that would be wonderful. But that's not the rationale. The rationale is not because it will reverse the crime, but it's the rationale or the legislative intent is usually that because the abortion itself is harming the mother in such a way, adding to the harm of the sexual assault, that a criminal sanction is unnecessary. So in a way, they work like, so exceptions, let's say for rape or eugenic abortion even, so where a fetus is non-viable or a fetus is affected by a condition diagnosed as incompatible with life. Those are exceptions that about only a third of the countries have. Those are regarded as kind of punishment waivers, so criminal waivers. They are not regarded as situations where a woman has an entitlement or, or can demand an abortion. And so I would say that is what I found most surprising because then I looked at these exceptions in other contexts where they don't become a legal entitlement. And some analogies I found were very interesting. For instance, the crime of involuntary manslaughter against one's own child by a parent. 
that is almost an identical example in the law and the laws of many countries, because that's usually a case where the criminal punishment is waived. So involuntary manslaughter is also punished, of course, but even with a short jail time or a relatively light jail time sentence, but because the harm to the parent, let's say, or the grandparent who kills and voluntarily kills their own child or grandchild is so intense, then the criminal punishment, you know, the public interest in the criminal punishment becomes so negligible, the legislator finds that it's not worth it, right? That they shouldn't be. That if you come from a deterrence perspective, and I would add that if you come from a retribution perspective, that I think was the classical view of punishment. I mean, the one that I think is still, you know, the justice oriented one, but in the retribution understanding of punishment, you know, the harm that the death of a child means is already so much that there is really no, nothing else that should be done, but just, yeah. That's an excellent observation because retribution and deterrence are the ends of criminal penalties, right? So in those cases, as in abortion, the self-harm to the mother is such that it sometimes doesn't, you know, make sense to enforce it against her. So the legislator waives criminal punishment under certain circumstances. But Latin American countries in practice don't really enforce their criminal bans on abortion against the mothers. I found that they're usually enforced against the abortion providers. And in that sense, I imagine that that is how it must have been in the United States before Roe v. Wade was decided. It acted more as a deterrent, having a deterrent effect on abortion practices from operating. Abortion practices probably operated in a small black market. They were illegal. When they became legal, you know, what happened is what we know now. It became a vast legal market for abortions, controlled with everything, monopolies, unfair competition, you name it, state subsidies, federal subsidies. So that's, I think, legalization had that effect here in the United States. And abortion bans have prevented that from happening in Latin America. Mm, I see. Yeah. So somehow the research on the bans showed you you know, the good sides of it, as some scholars in the U.S. say, you know, the research on rights can show you, you know, how lonely or how too young or too unprepared to make the decisions women here can be. Having a right doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best thing for you. But, you know, of course, there are different views. This is a controversial issue for sure. And the audience is divided. But I think that you provide a very good analysis of abortion in your book and it's helpful for anyone who really wants to understand how things are because, you know, we can't rely only so much in the media and what we read in headlines whenever a new law is being passed somewhere else in the world. So I want to thank you again, Professor Castaldi, for coming back. And I want to thank you also for your time and for sharing with us what you know. I would like to suggest again, you know, getting your book, Abortion Latin America and the Caribbean, The Legal Impact of the American Convention on Human Rights, published by University of Notre Dame Press. And well, you know, till the next time, Professor Castaldi. Thank you very much for having me, Mariana. And I just want to tell the audience that you've written about this topic too. So look for your articles online as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.